This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. 100 years ago this spring, the Paris premiere of Igor Stravinsky's ballet, The Rite of Spring, provoked a riot. Whistling, booing overran the performance. The police were called in to break up fights that broke out in the audience. That became possibly the most celebrated scandal in music history. Today, the Rite of Spring is an audience favorite, and rioting in concert halls is practically unthinkable. Is this a good thing? Does classical music need more scandals? In his latest column for BBC Music magazine, critic Richard Morrison argues that classical music needs more shock value. He joins us today from London. Also on the line, Leon Botstein, music director of the American Symphony Orchestra and president of Bard College, This August, the Bard Music Festival will look at Stravinsky and his world. Richard, the title of your article is Classical Music Needs to Toughen Up and Start Shocking Us Again. So I'm going to start with you. Why do you think classical music needs to start shocking us again? Well, it just occurred to me, you know, looking back at 100 years at those um, amazing scenes in Paris, and again in London when the Ballet Russe came to London a few months later, you know, another hostile demonstration. And it occurred to me that actually in the sort of 30-odd years that I've been a music critic on The Times, I've never actually witnessed a, a riot at a concert hall or an opera house, uh, you know, some booze at the end of some production or other, but no piece of music that actually forced people to walk out, except once at the proms when a piece by Peter Maxwell Davis uh, had a reaction. And it just struck me that we we're actually a bit too polite these days and maybe that composers aren't, you know, provoking us enough. Do you think composers have lost the ability to shock or are audiences just more jaded when it comes to new music? I think actually it, it's it's a question of not that they've lost the ability, but the musical style now isn't quite as abrasive and rough and wild. And the label, you know, enfant terrible, isn't particularly sought by the musicians of today, actually, it, the composers. I think they rather like to be liked rather than creating an uproar. Leon, what is your reaction to this? Well, I entirely disagree. First of all, the scandal a hundred years ago wasn't about the music, it was about the choreography. There was a real riot and scandal in the same year in March in Vienna. That was more about music uh, and also about politics. What was that? I don't think. In in Vienna, there was a uh, concert organized by Schoenberg which was also stopped and never completed, and because people were outraged by the music of Berg and Webern and so. So the the reason they were shocked, and if anybody was shocked at the Rite of Spring, is because people did own a kind of musical language, which they thought it was theirs, and it was a mark of politeness and a mark of, of uh, somehow respectability, and these young composers were sticking their proverbial finger in their eye. But it wasn't. The riot in Paris was not about the music. The music immediately took off. I don't think classical music about scandal or riot. Leave it to football matches. Leave it to political rallies. This is an entirely different art form, and I think we should walk away from the way Hollywood makes success. Uh, Richard, you wrote that a lot of today's new music, you mentioned Enfant Terrible, and you wrote that you think a lot of new music today is more concerned with being ironic and cool and hip more than being angry or provocative. 
Yes, I think the very word postmodern, which we use about our era such a lot, um, indicates that we've gone beyond the stage when there were great battles of styles between, you know, the serialists on one hand and the people who follow Stravinsky on the other, or between people who use tonality and people who rejected tonality. I think, you know, today's composers are much more like e eclectic magpies going and selecting the bits that they want, including from rock and jazz as well. And the result is this kind of all-embracing mush, if you like. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying that, that stylistically, it's rather, it, it covers so many different schools. And I just wonder whether actually there's an attempt there to try and please everybody. Well, I, I think uh, Mr. Marston is right that the comp composition is very eclectic. The problem is, is that they're desperate because no one gives a damn about what they do. See, at least in 1913, before the modern entertainments, uh, for educated and polite society, music was important. To educate and polite society, whether it's the members of the House of Parliament or the wealthy on some Riviera, they couldn't give a damn about classical music. They care probably about rock music and about film and about painting. So uh, music is sort of at the margin. So these composers are desperate to be noticed. And uh, as you point out, you know, there's not much to shock anymore. So you can, you know, everything seems to have been done. And the discovery is that music is not really at the end about shock value. It's about some aspect of originality of using sound in the imagination. And I agree with Mr. Morrison that there's a certain amount of um, a desire to satisfy a pretty bored public, and you'll end up with boring music. Well, you bring up the point of that this is where people went to get their music today, you can get new music. If your friend sends you a sound file, you go on the computer, music on demand. But back then, if you wanted music, you had to go to concerts. So if you paid good money to go hear new music and you didn't like it, was that enough to provoke a riot? No, no. The point is that I think now people, for example, fail to realize that good things, that recording is sort of coming to an end. People do want live music. In New York, there's a lively scene in small places like Poisson Rouge and other things like that. So there is a desire to hear the public space and share the experience of, of music. Mr. Morrison's pointing out, which is correct, is that there is not at the moment a real commitment to a certain kind of sound aesthetic that fits the time and the period. It's not about being angry. It's about making a statement. And the problem is the audience itself is not musically literate in the same way as 100 years ago. These are not people who are playing piano at home and playing Chopin and sort of swooning at romantic gestures of Rachmaninoff. They're not doing that. Uh, they're not actually literate in music. They only have learned to listen to Mahler over and over on a turntable or now a CD or an iPod or on your computer. So, Richard, what is your reaction to this? I think that's right. But I think there is another problem here, which is that um, serious composers in the 1950s, 60s and 70s did rather lose their audience, or maybe they didn't even care about having an audience. And we are reaping that whirlwind in a way that today's young composers have to go back to trying, trying to get the audience again back to classical music, for new music I'm talking about. And consequently, they are softening the style quite a bit. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we aren't having these highly provocative pieces of music written now. I think it's really a t an attempt to 
persuade people who are put off by the sort of Boulez and Stockhausen era that actually new music in the classical uh, concert hall is worth listening to. Well, when did that change? Because in previous centuries, audiences demanded new music. It's a historic, it really occurs around the uh, turn of the century in 1908, 9, and then a period of the right of spring, and then by the 20s it gets more aggressive. But Mr. Morrison's right, the real break happens in the 50s, when composers, partly because the fascists and the communists were supporting old-fashioned kind of music, became very aggressive in their modernism. But the real difference, I think Mr. Morrison's absolutely right, uh, the problem is the audience is musically illiterate. And therefore, if you want to do something very daring and sophisticated, you're presuming a literate audience. You know, uh, Joyce uh, had a readership that read novels. They read Ian Foster, they read Trollope, or they read Dickens. There was something, or Pound. People had read Tennyson as children. So Pound went after, and Eliot went after a kind of literate aesthetic. That literate aesthetic now doesn't exist in music. So there's very little for the composer to push back on. And that's the dilemma they face. The audience is very intolerant and difficult in terms of its capacity to understand anything that might be new or interesting or demanding. Is that true of your American Symphony Orchestra audiences? No, our American because we do rare repertoire only. We're doing a program of Hungarian composers of the 20th century who were killed during the war, stuff like that. So we do very, very rare repertoire, but it's usually historic, which means the style of the repertoire is already familiar to the audience. We don't do much new music. Richard, let me ask you, serialism, computer music, they had shock value. Was that a good thing? They had shock value, but they, uh, but hardly anybody was shocked because hardly anybody was listening to it. You know, the, the trouble with what's happening today, I think, is that if you look at the people that are around in, in 1913, you know, Stravinsky, Strauss, Schoenberg, Pacini was still around. You know, these are giant figures, and they had not just musical integrity, but they, they had worldwide clout, if you like. They mattered on the greater cultural scene. I look around the composers today, and there are many, many very fine composers today, but I don't see them making an impact on the world stage, if you like, that people like Stravinsky did. And I think it would be nice if, if a composer really became a celebrity again. And I'm not saying that in a, in a slightly superficial way, that they were household names again. And I think that's partly to do with the sort of music they write, but also the strength of their character and their determination. Well, what about minimalism? Um, well, you know, Philip Glass is a, a household name, certainly. Steve Reich, John I Adams. I would argue that Steve Reich, John Adams, and, and Philip Glass uh, achieved some of that status. And remember that the political context is crucial. So Shostakovich was important, not because he was that innovative, but he was became a figure um, in, in the context of tyranny. And um, Copeland in the United States, you know, fashioned a kind of image of America through sound. So, you know, I, I'm pretty optimistic that that could happen again. And I think John Adams uh, and Glass and Reich have really uh, made a mark. So I would... Uh, the real question is, is whether... Made a mark without listen. making a riot. Right. But they, although some people don't like their music, the question is whether the political context has an opening, the cultural context, an opening for classical music to do as Mr. Morrison suggests. And I think there is. I think your point about uh, minimalism is, is well taken. Actually, I, I should say that there was a small riot or riot-like event connected with a Steve Reich performance when his four organs was performed in Carnegie Hall in 1973. 
Well, and of course, John Adams's opera, The Death of Klinghoffer, did cause enormous uproar, but that was more because of its subject matter than, than any musical uh, quality. And um, I would say the same about The Rite of Spring, actually. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I don't t- totally agree that it was solely because of uh, Nijinsky's choreography. I think Stravinsky's music was pretty shocking in its own right. Um, just Especially about the minim- for people who had heard The Firebird. Exactly. Just about minimalism, I, th- I think that did have an enormously beneficial effect uh, on particularly composers in Europe who were locked in that kind of serialism mode of thinking. You know, that was all 30 years ago now, and right. I-, I wish there was a new generation coming along with something a little bit but more um, I meaty. I think there is, and I think the key will be the connection between music and the visual arts and performance art. Minimalism got part of its impetus from its connection to Saul LeWitt and to the minimalist movement in visual arts and painting. And I think we're going to see some out of the performance art. Mr. Morrison mentioned the connection with rock and jazz, and so I, I do think these goes, these things come in ebbs and flows. And so I think we're maybe in a downtime, but there is a turn. And I think some of it will be the appropriation of popular cultural elements and uh, mixed media where music is a part of the total package. Uh, there is something around the corner. I see a lot of young composers in our conservatory, and I hear a lot of what they do. And there's a lot of interest in writing music. And when you have such an interest among young people in writing new music, something is going to turn up. I think there's a, a point here that um, if you do go back to that Writer's Spring um, premiere, I mean, that was a total work of art, if you like. I mean, the dancing, of course, Diaghilev brought on board people like Cocteau and Picasso to do his stage designs. So, you know, in those days, people were crossing over to different um, forms of art. So I think composers today are only going back to what, what was done in those days and saying, well, look, there's more to life than just music. You've got to take your inspiration from video art, if you like, or from projections or, or whatever. It all helps to enrich the experience. Richard, you mentioned that you were at a Peter Maxwell Davis premiere in 1969 when there was audience backlash. What happened? Well, he wrote a piece called World is Bliss, and it was in the proms, which is a fairly you know discerning audience. And... Nevertheless, uh, I think there were seven percussionists banging hammers against metal scaffolding, so it made an awful racket. And um, this really set off actually quite a quite a strong and hostile reaction, and quite many hundreds of people left the hall that night. But it was such a one-off. It was on the BBC News the next day, you know, riot or scandal at the Royal Albert Hall. And really, I remember it because nothing like it has, has ever happened since. And of course, Peter Maxwell Davis then became a far more moderate and mellow figure in his later uh, works and, you know, almost like a Sibelius-like composer now. So he didn't continue on that enfant terrible uh, path, which I think is rather a, a shame in a way. Well, I, I, but where Mr. Marshall and I disagree is I have no nostalgia for riot <laughs> and conflict and almost bordering on violence reaction to this art form. As a performer, the idea of people walking out and being outraged, I've never had the character of an enfant terrible, so I I have no sympathy for it at all. But I think if you look at the history of of classical music, it's a very fine balance between tradition and revolution. And, you know, yes, you did have Haydn and Mozart, who were craftsmen and and geniuses working in an established tradition. But then along came Beethoven, who turned everything upside down. So I think you need both both sets, if you like, both polarities. Yeah, I'm, in not, order f- I'm not against innovation. There's a misunderstanding. I agree with the innovation. But it doesn't have to create an audience scandal. You know, Beethoven, people didn't like it. 
people knew it was different. Mr. Morrison is right. But people sat through it and decided, even Carmel von Weber thought it was you know, just ugly and uh, bizarre. But I don't think we need a kind of newsworthy scandal. We have enough you know, shock value in our daily life. Last year, I was at the New York Philharmonic concert where Alan Gilbert had to stop conducting Mahler's Ninth because there was a constant cell phone ringtone going on. And that was the nearest thing to an audience riot that I have ever experienced. <laughs> they were I not see, happy. But I like that. You see, I would have had more cell phones. Go I am, I'm a Cajun in that regard. I find this kind of, you know, pious, uh, religious attitude to a concert life. You can't chew gum. You can't make a wrapper. There should be no ambient noise. Kind of sanitized view of concert life. Repugnant. People should clap in the middle. They should clap in between movements. But you'd I like find... them talking on their cell phones while you're yeah, conducting? Yeah, let them talk on their cell phones. Let them talk on their cell phones. Well, I mean, it seems to me, it seems to me, I this kind of that's what puts people off to going into a concert hall. They they think it's a church in which there's moral judgment on their behavior. It's ridiculous. People talked in the 18th century. People talked to the 19th century during opera. Richard, as a, an audience member and critic, what do you say to people talking and tweeting and cell phoning while you're concert while you're at a concert? Well, I think if it's if if it's a deliberate uh, tactic to liven up the performance, I'm not saying that Mr. Gilbert's performance of Marla was, was needed livening up, but you know, I, I, why not? I mean, they paid the money. But on the other hand, I, you but know, then there people, are people who have paid money not to be sitting in. Yes, a- of course. So that's why we've moved towards this. Um, you know, Mr. Butzai's right. We've moved towards this kind of um, temple-like aura for concert halls now, which never existed before the 20th century. Yes, it's and, ridiculous. I mean, actually. I agree. I mean, it, 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 and people wonder why they don't want to go into a concert hall. Well, you know, it is, you know, they do it discreetly. It's a fine with me. I, I, I find judgments on how other people should listen repugnant. We have in London now several orchestras that do repeats of performances, but in very different circumstances. First, the main sort of concert hall in the festival hall, which is absolutely a normal concert. And then they'll take a part of the program at 10 o'clock in the evening and do it again in the foyer, free, and people come in and they're talking and they're drinking, and uh, uh, the audience is about 100 years younger than the one in the concert hall. And, you know, that's great. It's it's the same music being appreciated in two two very different ways. Totally. I, I totally agree. Well, thank you both very much for a stimulating discussion. Thank Thank you very much. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were Bard College President Leon Botstein, who also conducts the American Symphony Orchestra, and Times of London music critic Richard Morrison. Brian Weiss is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thank you for listening.